valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Dan Fee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Fee. So glad to be back. It's been a long time. Um, this podcast is about my trip to Ghana, Amy and I's trip to Ghana. And I've been wanting to do this for a while, but just haven't had the time. When I got back from Ghana, I went, I worked about maybe three days after I got back or two days. Not sure. Was it two days? Amy? Amy's here joining me. Three days. Podcast. Three days. And then I went to Ottawa uh, and I was there till Monday. And then I came back. And then that Monday night, as we pulled into the, the driveway, I got sick. I wanted you to be there for my birthday. Yes. Your but birthday. you were. I was there. And then I got sick. I got hit with the flu. I thought I had malaria, but I didn't. I looked up the symptoms because I was like feverish, shaking, all that. But I wasn't vomiting. So I didn't get malaria. I took my malaria pills, so I was safe there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just the flu put me out, so I delayed and delayed, and now I finally decided to do this podcast about our trip to Ghana. Um, not because I think I'm important, but because a lot of people have been asking us how it went. How'd your trip go? And there's so much to say. My only response that I give to people is, um, yeah, our trip was a whole experience, a whole experience. I can't say that, oh, it was fun, or I can't say that, oh, it was informative. It was everything. It was emotional. It was exciting. It was hot. It was very hot. Um, Yeah, so we're going to start with just how the trip went, our first initial thoughts arriving in Ghana, and then we're going to talk about what we thought about the country, or we might have some thoughts on that. Uh, And then I'm going to kind of over, I'm going to kind of suggest or go over some of the reasons why I felt like my parents made the decision to leave Ghana to come to this part of the world. Yeah, I will talk about the key moments of our trip for both of us, the things that we thought was exciting, memorable, the highlights. And then to end this all, I'm going to talk about me going to jail. Yes, you heard that correctly. I know. I've never been to jail in my life. But the one time that it happens, it happens in Ghana. Never wow. a dull moment with Tamfi. <laughs> uh, my life should be a sitcom. Anyways, so let's start with the initial thoughts and feelings. Um, do you want to? What are your first thoughts? Because this is a big trip for you. You haven't been back since you were eight years old when you left. And you, you said that you didn't remember very much. Even when I would ask you, do you remember anything about Ghana? Uh, you said, no, I, little things here and there, playing soccer maybe. But for the most part, you didn't really remember much. So this is a big, big trip for you. This is going back to where you were born, going back to the same city seeing the house you grew up in. Yeah, so what were your thoughts and feelings when you first got there? Excitement. The initial feeling was just emotions of excitement and even getting on a flight, stopping in Paris, and then last destination being Accra was like surreal. I think it was, I didn't think it was actually happening until we got there. And even being there was surreal. Going to the airport, um, getting off the plane, and then walking out the arrival area and then seeing people waiting for other people. And then through the crowd, I saw my mother's brother coming towards us. And then I saw Mankwa, my brother. That was surreal, emotional. Um, it just didn't seem real, you know? And then I think the initial wave of heat that also hits you coming from Canada. Oh, yeah. It's all cold. Tropical and then heat. all of a sudden this heat just, boom, hits you. It's like a sauna. 
Um, I was surprised at how smooth it was getting off the airport and getting into the country. Danfi's family had arranged for people to meet us in the airport. Yeah, I didn't even know all the planning that had gone behind that. Beku was there. His, I mean, his uh, friend was there at the airport. He worked at the airport, so he really just like brought Abeku's us. Beku's brother. Beku is a childhood friend of mine, and his brother's friend helped us when we got to the airport. It was like we felt like celebrities because he he uh, he was like outside of the terminal, and then right when we walked out, he was he had a picture of us. <laughs> so then he was like, "Oh, you guys are Amy and Danfi and my parents." And then he led us through the line, so we avoided all the little hassles and whatnot. So that was like nice. It was like. Ghanaians are really hospitable. I think that was like very evident when we got there. Mm-hmm. Very, very evident. That was nice. So yeah, so it was a, I was it was surreal uh, when we were driving to our destination where my aunt was staying. I was just my well. Just eyes. wait one sec. You didn't tell your brother that you were coming. Oh yes. So, so this was a surprise for him. Yes. So I didn't I didn't tell him. I made sure that I didn't post anything to kind of give a heads up of the fact that we were coming because my sisters are like, you know, he's gonna freak out if you just pop up there and the initial story behind that is that my sister told me not to say anything and she was going to tell him that there's a package waiting for him at the airport so he should just uh, get there at a certain time so he had no clue that we were arriving my parents and amy and i were coming um i was itching because i wanted him to know in case like he had like planned out his time like if he had to work or anything like that while we were there i didn't want him to have to like you know not be available to hang out but we got there and he was shocked, excited, and he, he was like, I, I don't know, I think he was... It was a nice surprise. Yeah, he was just taken back. You could just see the joy in his face, the joy in my parents' face. He was excited to see me with Amy and my parents, and I think... It's a big moment. Yeah, it was, it was a massive moment, massive. And then um, just driving around, I think leaving the airport, looking at the country looking at people around, just how the country's set up. I was glued to the window, just looking out and looking at every little thing, every little detail, uh, feeling so lost. Um, I usually, I recognize, I like to know where I'm at and maneuver places. I'm really good with like my memory, but I just felt completely lost. So that was my initial thoughts of the country. I was impressed with certain things I was seeing, you know, uh, some buildings. The airport was really nice. I, I really like the airport. It's very clean. Um, those are my initial feelings when I first arrived. And then just catching up with little stories. We would drive by little places. My brother would remind me, oh, this is where this and this happened. Or we used to live. Or, you know, you went to school there. We used to live in this corner. Or, again, it didn't really, I didn't remember. But it was nice to know that uh, those places was part of my history. Uh, I think another thing that was interesting was, Having left for so long and live in this part of the world, I had a collection of family members here. And so I thought that was my family, you know, and uh, I didn't really think beyond this part of the world that I had family, like real family outside of this country or this part, like outside of the States and Canada that know me and have known me. And I think when I got to Ghana, I recognized just that I was a, I was part of a bigger family, you know. Meeting cousins you didn't even know you had. No, I had no idea. Seeing your aunts. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was like, wow. It was always ambiguous when your mom would talk about, oh, yeah, your aunt in Ghana and this and that. But it was never like a picture to a name or mm-hmm. any specifics. Mm-hmm. So it was it was nice to see that I was part of a bigger family. Um, we stayed with your aunts, one of your aunts. Yeah, and that was nice. She had a really nice place. Yeah, we were very, spoiled. Yeah, very accommodating. 
Actually, I want to ask you, what did you think about the accommodations? How did it make you feel? Did you think that they were treating you different? Uh, maybe not initially, because we were just going home to be with your family. Right. Um, the place where his aunt lives is very nice. She has a very nice home. And we had a nice room with our own bathroom, little fridge, air conditioner. These are like luxuries, particularly in Ghana. Yeah, yeah. So definitely it was nice. Um, and just observing like the differences, obviously. Uh, you're you're taking in so much when you come into uh, a new country. There's so much to observe and think about and adjust to. Um, I didn't feel that way initially, no. It wasn't until, you know, you're, you're out and about and kind of having general interactions with people. But I think that Ghana, like Danfi said, is very hospitable. So people are, the culture is hospitable. Right. It doesn't really matter who you are. If you're a guest or you're a friend of a friend, they're going to treat you with just kind of that royal treatment. Yeah, yeah. And you could see that they didn't treat you differently because they treated me the same way. Yeah, you know? yeah, no. I didn't, I don't think that I felt that initially. I, it's hard to get used to, like, just the culture where they have housemaids and younger people living in the house that do the cleaning and cooking. And I know that's just providing work for them and it's even maybe giving them a home and that type of thing. So it's seen as positive, but it feels like a class system. So I didn't really like that feeling. Um, like I wanted to do my own dishes and kind of like be comfortable in the kitchen. But it was always like, oh, no, sit, sit. I'll take that for you. And almost to like take that away from them was like to insult them. Yeah. But yeah. you don't want this class system. Like you, you don't want them to feel like, oh, I'm somehow better than you. So you should serve me. I don't know. I found that challenging. So I'd try and sit in the back sometimes where the uh, outdoor kitchen was and talk to the girls and ask them questions about their lives just so we didn't have that kind of separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think it was, I think that's pretty spot on. And I think there was one incident where I told uh, Sharon, she was, Sharon was like the girl that took care of us. Uh, she was trying to grab something. I was like, Oh no. I was like, I got this. I, I can do this. And she's, and I was like, you're not my maid, you know? And she's like, no, no, I'm not. She's like, I just, I'm just want to treat you like you're my bigger brother. I was like, my sisters don't treat me like that. Well, well yeah. Your well, sisters do. do spoil you, especially Akos. <laughs> yeah. She waits on you hand and foot, so I don't know about that one. Okay, fair Maybe enough. Maybe not a Santua, but... Well, she, she, does, she treats me different in another way. She buys me stuff. Yeah. <laughs> she won't wait on me, but she'll buy me stuff. Um, yeah, no, so it was great. Uh, I think what I felt about the country entering in, I felt like, well, so this perspective is not from when we first initially got there. This is like a perspective, like having been there and coming out. I think Ghana is a rich country. Uh, in fact, I could say that about the continent of Africa. Uh, the resources abound. And I'd like to think of it as like, it's like a really nice home that's been abandoned. It hasn't been abandoned because it's not nice. It's been abandoned because there's no one to really take initiative to cultivate all the beauty that this house has so this house lays waste and it's got it's overgrown there's shrubs all over the place grass isn't cut and outside of this home is a really nice car let's say it's like a maserati or aston martin and it goes in and out that car represents the rich in ghana they are mobile they can do whatever they want um and they get to see other parts of the world and they come back to the to the home 
And the home is full of treasure. There's wisdom in Ghana. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of educated people. There's a lot of wisdom. Uh, it's just that wisdom hasn't been tapped. It hasn't been cultivated. It hasn't been excavated. And I feel as though once people can deploy their skills in like a, some set of like employment setting or somewhere the economy could really benefit from it. I think job creation is a huge thing that could be better in Ghana and just in the whole continent of Africa. Um, but I, yeah, I'd like, like I said, I'd like to think of Ghana as like a beautiful home that just hasn't been kept up. Um, and there's so much treasure in that home. And the moment someone decides or the whole family gets together to say, you know what, let's clean this house up and make it what it really is. Then I think the true beauty of Ghana will shine forth, even though it's still doing that now. I think it has more beauty to, um, to be discovered. And that's how I think of Ghana is that there's so much opportunity, uh, so much wealth. Whereas the mismanagement of the, the money that comes in isn't been given to the right people to do these things. It's been kept for the rich or, yeah, it's, it's used used in unethical ways. Yeah, I mean by politicians and whatnot. That's what you hear about anyways, corruption in government. Right. And um and the corruption in government is it's nothing so a lot of the you know, I mean, the criticism that I probably would have of the country isn't something that's unique to Ghana or to the continent of Africa. We have them here. Politicians are crooked here. They mismanage yeah. funds all the time. It's just that there it's it's glaring. I feel like most of the mismanagement here often happens in secret ways and then they get discovered and blown up and then people freak out. Oh, I can't believe, you know, they're doing this. Whereas like, I think like in African countries like here, or, there's more in, of a paper trail. Yeah. In there Ghana, is. it seems like it's just, they can do it right in your face and nobody really does anything. There's about lack it. of accountability. Yeah. There's, there's a lack of uh, accountability. Like, um, for the leadership, uh, I really think the people need to know how much power they have to hold their politicians to a high standard. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate because I think this is what kind of holds Ghana and the continent of Africa back. I'm not speaking as someone who has the best perspective or the, the clearest perspective, but I think um, Africans have been so, uh, I think colonialism had to do something with it. We're, we're so, we're, we have a survival mentality. Uh, and so we think about our immediate needs because those immediate needs are so important and so, Blaring. yeah, they're, they're pressing. So you think about your immediate needs and then you, you kind of. Like you can sacrifice future investment for immediate needs. Exactly. And I think that's really affected us as a people, as a mentality. And I think even people who come into leadership, presidents, instead of leaving a legacy that your name would be written in a history that, oh, we, I brought this country to this certain place. They're just concerned about lining their pockets, you know, with whatever. Taking care they, of their own, their own families. Immediate, or again, the immediate pressing issues are more important than the future progress of a country or a people group. Um, that's not to say that every African thinks that way, that they have that immediate mentality. But it is something that is pervasive, I would say. That affects a lot of uh, how we, um, we do things. But I know that it is changing. It's changing. There's, I think the younger people and people that are coming up have a different mentality. And that's, I like to say that's uh, encouraging to see. And the current president has great 
thoughts. He's an eloquent individual. He's got great ideas. It's just how he's going to implement that. I, I know there's a there's a campaign coming up soon. I don't know if he's going to be re- uh, voted back, but I know one of the things that people commended him on, there was like mixed reviews about him. I know some people said that he was, uh, that he did a good thing of uh, implementing free education all the way up to high school, which was something that wasn't present at the moment in the past. So that was good that people commended him on, but I don't know if anybody commended him beyond that. So there's a lot more things to be done. And uh, yeah, anyway, so that's my views of the country. A beautiful home that needs a lot more care for it to shine forth its beauty. And um, everyone needs to put their hands on deck to do that. Yeah, uh, I think... um, Danfi, I wanted to ask you why you think your parents decided, or particularly your dad, why he decided to come to North America. I think initially he wanted to go to London, England, right? The UK? Yeah, that was the destination where most of his friends or people were going. But yeah, what do you think motivated? I mean, and you think about this, this is probably like 25 years ago. So even Ghana has changed a lot in 25 years. Right. But imagine Ghana 25 years ago. What do you think it was that motivated your father to think, I want to move my family. I want to try to immigrate to another country. To be honest, I don't know all of his reasons. Um, I will provide some form of perspective for having gone back. I mean, I understood some of my, some of like, the things that my parents really harped on when we were growing up, like education and making something of myself. Going back, it was clear why they were so, why they emphasized on such things. And I think it's because they wanted to provide an opportunity for us that would allow us to succeed in life. That the basic things in life wouldn't, we wouldn't have to fight hard for. I think you were saying something about starting from zero or starting at 10. Yeah, so what was that illustration? So I, I developed a scale of like a, it's like a numeric scale to kind of describe why I felt like my parents made the decision they, they did. It's nothing profound, but it just helped me kind of make sense of why that decision would have been made. So, so zero is like, zero represents a really, it's just like a third world country, essentially. Like, and I'm not saying Ghana is not necessarily a third world country, but zero represents having hard access to water, to electricity, um, to basic needs of life. That's what zero would represent in this numeric scale. 10 is what would be readily available to you. Water, electricity, basic health services and things like of that sort Good of nature. Good transportation. Good transportation, public transportation, all these little things. That's like number level 10. Level 10 and then 20 is like, 20 is like you've made something of yourself. Your parents have, are like upper middle class. They've done really well themselves. They have like a you have the finer things in life. You can enjoy some of the finer things in life. Anything above 20 is like, okay, you're privileged. You're a millionaire and whatnot. And most people in this part of the world don't get 20 or they, some people get to 20 and they get above 20, but that, the, that's the exception, not the rule. So with this numeric scale, scale, I developed that. My parents, when my dad left, he thought, he saw and he thought, okay, Ghana for now seems like it's a, a level zero for my kids. Right. And I want to get them to the place where they start at 10. You know, now that's not to say that when my before my dad left or my mom, they left, they were like dirt poor because that's not the narrative I grew up with. Um, but it's to say that they wanted certain things to be readily available in education. Like you said, like just basic access to water, clean water, um, infrastructure that's uh, well developed and all these little things. So my dad wanted to make sure that when we grew up, we were starting at 10. In Ghana, most people start at zero 
and then they're lucky to get to 10. Um, in this part of the world, everybody starts at 10. I mean, if you, if you are assertive and you have access to certain privileges, then you can get to, you can go up the ranks to 20 or 15. 15 is a good life. It's like middle class, right? So I think my dad saw that. These are the world standards, of course. Yeah, I, I think my dad saw the situation and thought, okay, well, I want my kids to start at 10 rather than zero um, so that I can push them to go further. Because when growing up here and all this is like education was so big. My parents, my dad essentially didn't really invest in my interest in sports and things like that, of that sort of nature because he always thought about, okay, what if you have a major injury? What are you going to fall back on? And I didn't bring you to this part of the country so that you would play soccer, you know? So it was hard for me to understand because I was like, it's the big deal, you know? Like if I, if I have the talent, why not invest in it? But now I understand. It's not that they, they bow down to the idols of education, and sometimes it is an idol, um, but they wanted their kids not to suffer or have it hard. And going back to Ghana made me appreciate that because I thought, wow, like I didn't, I don't know what it's like to have to, you know, fend for basic things that I have now, or even the ability to just get up and apply for a job to make a resume, you know, and just get like a basic entry job somewhere here in Canada is a privilege. There's a lot of educated people in Ghana who went to school and now don't have a job. And mm. then they have to resort to hustling, finding some way to make money. That's a privilege here. I could start, I could goof around get through high school and then get work experience and work my way up somewhere. You know what I mean? And if you screw around there, you're screwed. <laughs> like you, you have to take life seriously. So I think those are the motivation or I think that was. People work really hard in Ghana. I think you have to, you don't have a choice. Yeah. You, you grind. Yeah, you have to. And I'm glad that my dad gave us this opportunity to come to this part of the world. It makes more sense now. I'm not sure that I took that opportunity as best as I can. So Maybe there's a bit of disappointment there going back and, you know. You said something about wishing you had gone sooner. Yes. Like in your 20s or even when you were a teenager. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I wish I would have gone sooner, growing up in our house, my dad always made jokes about the fact that if we didn't, if we didn't obey or we didn't behave or get good grades, he was going to send us back to Ghana. And that was like the ongoing joke. And as kids, you believe everything, right? It's so like my, a threat. It's like a threat. So he, he, he always told us that he had a ticket. Um, that he had in the closet and that all he had to do was just put one of our names on it and he would send us back to Ghana if we didn't take our education serious or just played around. So that kind of mentality was like, we're like, okay, we don't want to go back to Ghana because it's embarrassing to go back, having come to the West and being sent back by your parents. It just means that you didn't cut it. Like you were rebellious or you didn't succeed in, you know, in all the opportunities that were available to you. So I, um, I think my siblings and I never really made plans to go back to Ghana. We just never thought about it. Um, and it was just like a, a thing that my parents would do when I think it's their parents passed away, they went back, but it was never something that we actually desired to do to go back. So having gone back and seen that the country is beautiful, the people are great. There's a great opportunities for different entrepreneurship, like businesses and whatever you want to do there. Um, I mean, it sure has its setbacks. Things just don't readily like grow in the soil for you like quickly you have to do, put some work into it but I just went back and appreciated the country the people the culture not that my parents didn't teach us to appreciate it but they just never really made put an emphasis on us like going back there and, and investing in something there 
so having gone back there at this stage in my life, I was like, man, I wish I would have gone. I can't, I wish I would have came back earlier because I would know more. And then if I'm going back at this age, hopefully I'd have something already established there, you know, helping somebody out, helping family or, you know, doing something that's valuable there. So that's why I felt like, you know, it would have been nice to go back earlier than I did. Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Just also give you more of a, I think a sense of identity too, understanding like your culture. Cause I think there was a lot of years where you didn't really um, see the value in it. Yeah. I definitely gained a, like a new appreciation for my culture. Definitely. I mean, so much so that <laughs> I've been threatening Amy that we're going to move there. <laughs> She's like, we can't move there if we don't have a plan. But, uh, but no, I, I definitely love my culture a lot more going to certain landmarks, Cape Coast Castle, Elmina Castle, just looking at different places. I was like, man, I, I don't know. This is like, a, I guess this is a moment of vulnerability being in this part of the world. Um, especially being a black person in this part of the world, there's really nothing that you have at stake in this part of the world, unless you really like, you know, and make something of yourself and like hyper achieve like black excellence, you know, whereas like in, in Ghana, I didn't feel the pressure uh, to be exceptional. Not that it's not there. There's definitely the pressure. There's, there's definitely like the pressure to succeed and to make something of yourself, but you don't feel that added pressure to be exceptional, to be accepted in the greater society. Because if you're not, you'll be profiled or there's stereotypes that are already like placed on you as a black person, you know, in this part of the world. And it seems as though even, even land, property, there are so many people who's, or white people, I'd say, white Europeans that came here um, and took over land illegally. <laughs> um, but they... In doing so, they had something to pass on to subsequent generations. Whereas like when my parents came and other Africans that came, or if you came through slavery, um, you weren't afforded that ability or that opportunity or that privilege. So our parents pretty much took a gamble to come here. It's like a, they came here to work hard to make something for their kids here. Now your dad owns land in the U.S. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you make it sound like he owns like an acre or something. Well, and he plus, owns a home. Ownership here is a little is a little different. You know, how much do you own it? <laughs> you know, you miss a payment and you might get you miss a few payment. And they'll take it away. Whereas like in Ghana, if you own land, it's yours. You know, there's like a, a real feeling of ownership, you know. Um, so going there, I felt like, you know, I felt more free to feel like, oh, yeah, this is this is my country. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like. Yes, I felt like Canada's my country. I felt like, you know, the States, when I grew up in the States, I felt like that was like a country, but I never really felt like it was my country. Do you know what I mean? I never, like, black people are always trying to find themselves in this part of the world, um, which is unfortunate because there's so much, so much history behind us back home, you know? And I think that's where, like, my, my interest was peaked. And wanting to really invest in that and grab a hold of that. Not to a state where I idolize it, because that could be dangerous too, right? I mean, as a Christian, I'd like to recognize that my inheritance is really with Christ. Um, it's a season of discovery, though, and it's positive. Yeah, so I, I'm i really happy. I'd, and as you know, I'd like to do something there, for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I definitely am interested in doing something there. What would you say are some of your key moments from the trip uh, before we do that let's talk about <clears throat> the anxiety of uh finding out that your dad was not feeling well 
Well, that was at the end. Uh, not really. It was like mid. It was like so we had a week that we had that had passed. A week that we we did. So here's a good thing. We did a lot before we got the news that your dad was rushed into the hospital. Mm-hmm. So you didn't feel like you were missing on some of the major things we wanted to do. Yeah, it was ten days. Ten days into our trip that I found out my dad was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's not too bad considering that's quite a few days. Yeah, I think. But I'm glad we did a lot of the things that I wanted to do um, within that first week. Because if we had put them off to the second week, then it wouldn't have happened. So yeah, going I, to Cape Coast and um, that was an overnight trip. Doing that was good. I'm glad for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to go to the ocean. That was like a big thing. A big desire for me uh, was to see the ocean and spend some time there. So it was nice that we got to do that. And then also the um, park, National Park. Yeah, Kakum National Park. Kakum National Park. That was nice. Yeah, that was that's <laughs> kind of scary. It's like a suspended bridge in the air. Yeah, actually built by... A Canadian, Tom and John, I Tom think. Tom and John from They're Vancouver. In Vancouver, yeah. It was really interesting to find out that. That was really cool. But uh, yeah, that was fun. And they've sustained it for the years. It's really cool. Um, you're like literally walking in, in the air, in the woods. Between trees. It's like a jungle. Yeah, it's forest, really cool. Rainforest feeling. Uh, the only thing is I kind of wish we had spent more time, uh, f- like taken more time to do these things because it takes so long to travel in Ghana. Like there's a lot of traffic and so you can expect to be in the car for three hours just to go to one place. And that's just even within Accra. Yeah. And the this traffic was, I think it took us five hours to get to Cape Coast. Well, we stopped along the way to visit your um, your uh, family, Rita. Yeah, Rita and the boys. But, yeah, five hours. So, I mean, you're pretty tired by the time you get there. And then and the roads it feels are, rushed. The roads aren't, like, <clears throat> perfectly paved. So you can't, like, you know, fly through Yeah, traffic. no, there's, it's, like, some massive potholes in those dirt roads. and. Oh, man. Tra- like, you have to move slow over those potholes. Yeah, yeah. And we got a crack in the windshield. Oh. oh, stressful. Yeah, I had to pay for that. We had a rental that we had gotten from uh, in Ghana. And um, on our way to the uh, Cocoon Park, there was a car in front of us. And the road wasn't paved. And I guess it was going, it wasn't, it wasn't going that fast. But the rock flicked up into the windshield and cracked it in two places. I was choked. And I was like, you know what? This is going to cost us. So we, we had to get like someone to fix it in a craw and it get it got filled in i think it disappeared yeah it could have been worse yeah um so yeah no i think the trip was fun and then hearing the news about your dad like added it like a new weight of anxiety because i just felt yeah i think for me i pretty much checked out at that point yeah definitely and well I felt it. i'm being told basically like my dad might not live before i even get home and i'm seeing pictures of all my family like at the hospital together I was like, how fast can I get there? Yeah, and I think it was, uh, I think we talked to your dad when he was in the hospital, and he was like, you were, uh, I think we told him that I played soccer outside with the boys, and he was like uh, asking me, oh, how is it playing? I was like, that's not important at all right now. I'm like, how are you doing in the hospital? Showing more interest in in our trip, and he didn't want me to come back. Yeah, he was like, don't worry about me, don't have to come. I was like, "Uh, I don't think that's an option right now. Um, anyways, yeah. yeah, I didn't want 
you to be stuck there and then to hear that your dad passed away, that would have been terrible. So I'm glad we acted upon that quickly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was really only another two days after that, but those two days, you know, looking back, I, I tried to make the best of it, but I think I probably should have just stayed in the room for those two days. Because <gasps> uh, I was already like feeling pretty low and tired and stressed and everything. So it affected our enjoyment of those last two days, but that's okay. We're on the other side now. Yeah, it was uh, just glad your dad's still alive. Because there's that tension of Danfi like being really excited and wanting to enjoy himself and then me like going through negative emotions. And then, of course, I have more challenges coming to Ghana than he does because I don't speak the language. And like 80% of the conversations are in tree. And that, so think we're five hours in the car and maybe 10 words are in English for six hours, five hours. <laughs> but from Danfi's perspective, he doesn't see that that could be challenging after a while. Well, it's not that I can't or, see that it's Or he thinks I should learn the language faster. No, I don't think you should. No, I'm thinking, <laughs> well, what did you expect? Do you know what I mean? If we're in a Spanish country and everyone's yeah, speaking Spanish, three, I'm not going to get upset with them for But three Spanish. of the people speak English. So you guys chose to speak only in tree. I was speaking English to you. How not else do we communicate? to me, but not when the group was speaking tree, you weren't changing the conversation to English. You're going along with it in tree. Well, okay. So well, and you're not translating it either or filling me in on what's going well, on. Well, I don't translate because they're talking about themselves. They talk, it's not like anything that's about us, right? Yeah. If they're talking anyway, about us, then I translate. For and anybody, there was moments when I did that. For anybody that, that's in a marriage or relationship where they don't speak the language of the other person in the family, I'm sure you understand what I feel. <laughs> it's definitely more challenging than you anticipate, I think. You that's can try to prepare yourself for it, but when you're in it, it's... It's harder than you. You can't really prepare yourself for it. I don't think you can. Yeah, you you thought, what, people were talking about you? No, I just think we've had this conversation before, though, like long time ago. I just think it can. Anyways, we don't need to open this can. It's been open. <laughs> Let's go. No, I'm kidding. No, I get it. I get it. Part of me was just like, I, so his mom hasn't been back in a long time. And she was really excited. So a big part of this trip was her getting to see people she hadn't seen in like years. And just, you know, this is where she spent most of her life. So, you know, this was a big deal for her, particularly. At least I felt it more from her, from his mom than from his dad. I mean, his dad was obviously excited, but he seemed like he could be content anywhere. But she was on a mission. Um, so... I think when she was just basically speaking in tree the entire time, even though I know she speaks English, clearly, I think I was trying to just let it go because it's been a long time since she's been home. And she's had to speak English in Canada and the U.S., so now she's somewhere where she doesn't have to speak English. So for her, it was probably more just the freedom to reconnect with her roots and be herself. And so I tried to just whatever but it's not easy i was impressed that i was able to actually speak the language and understand certain things because i don't hear it on a daily basis so some yeah. things came i mean i'm not proficient like 100 percent, probably like 80 percent, maybe you did well know. though and they sometimes mix english with trees so you can fill in the gaps yeah no yeah i'm glad i think i have my parents to thank for that for 
speaking to us in the language while we've been here. So now we're not completely lost with the language. Um, yeah, so the highlights. Let's talk about the highlights. I have, let me say, I'll say two highlights. Yes. I think Cape Coast Castle was a big highlight. And that's, I think Cape Coast Castle was a big highlight because of the information that was received. And I felt like our tour guide was really good. Uh, he was very, the way he started the whole tour thing was really interesting when he said this is a no judgment zone. Um, because it's such a place where you could easily, it's its visceral. The emotional can, your emotions can just overwhelm you and you could really get angry. I mean, the emotions that that place produces is insane. So when he started, he said this is a no judgment zone. And part of that, he said, is that uh, there's no country in the world that does not have bad history or egregious history that they don't want to talk about. He's like, so if that's the case, let's leave judgment in God's hand. And I thought that was good to start the um, the tour. And he was very charismatic. He showed us different areas and just all that went into like the slave trade or the transatlantic slave trade. And if you hear the stories and if you see what these slaves endured, the people that made it across the ocean are the strongest people in history because they were, they were literally put in like the worst conditions before they even got on the ship. They were in like a dark dungeon standing there for like six weeks. That alone could even kill somebody. Longer. Yeah. That alone could kill somebody. And the conditions are terrible. You're standing next, you're shackled and standing next to somebody that's doing their business right next to you and you're doing your business right next to them. So it was like, human feces and 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 with blood that heat can you imagine and the heat and just they're all in there and then somehow these people made it through like our our ancestors made it through to this part of the world and i'm just i was i was taken back by that it was amazing it made me think that resilience yeah the african spirit is resilient it's it's animated it's it's tough and it's all because of god's grace that we could we could say that about ourselves and boy was that terrible that whole incident uh terrible is probably like a huge understatement but i can't find a better word in this moment so the second highlight is the painting i acquired mm, so we yes. went we went to uh an art gallery in accra there was they called the arts market art market so this place just to give you a little description is like I don't know if it was like a, a building or it was covered. But anyways, it was all these little booths. And how big were they? Probably maybe like. Probably the size of like a kiosk. Five feet. Or bigger than a kiosk. Five feet wide. Yeah, they weren't very big. Very, but very was, small. They were all placed together. Just lined one after another. There must have been hundreds in there. And it was covered. So, yeah. And you just walk down these hallways and everyone's selling very similar things, art, you know, um, clothing, all kinds of little things, knickknacks, spoons. Yeah, painting, sculptures, everything, everything pretty much. And everyone's hackling you Oh, and yelling like, come, well, come to my shop, come to my shop. Oh, just come in, just come in. And they want you to physically like step in. You can see everything outside of it, but they still want you to come right in. Yeah, and it's it. almost like a form of respect if you just go in, like step into their shop. I don't know what the, the psychology is behind that, that maybe they're more likely to buy something. But I found personally the people that were the least pushy were the ones that I actually would consider because I just didn't like 
being hackled. And there was a few. They were kind of chill. And I was like, oh, I can actually like look, look around them. and linger. And Yeah, no, there was... The anyway, I guess that's not the African way. The, the art center uh, is, is crazy. And I think we also didn't look like locals. And it's 90 degrees inside there. Yeah. I with mean, like 60% humidity. They think you're rich. They think I'm rich. And then they automatically bombard us because they're like, oh. Yeah, I kind of wish I had a burka when I was there, except <laughs> it would have been too hot. Yeah, they, they just knew we weren't from there. So they definitely took uh, advantage of that and bombarded us. But they do that to anybody that they feel like is not from Ghana and is walking around like a tourist, right? There's a lot of tourists there, though. Yeah. So in the art gallery, uh, the art center, actually, we went there and at the last, we went to like the last booth at the end of it. And I saw this majestic painting and it's the painting is the picture on this podcast. So with regards to this painting, the reason why I liked it so much was because I felt as though it, uh, it encapsulated what Accra looked like. It felt like it's vibrant with colors, the texture, the heat, the movement of people, the energy, cars everywhere, people continuing to do their work in the midst of traffic. And I just thought this is the best picture I can have to describe what a crowd looks like. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like there's modern parts to it, but there's also very like undeveloped aspects to it. It's really, it's, it's interesting. It's like, it's like a juxtaposition of like rawness and tamed beauty. It was amazing. So I went up to the guy and I said, listen, I want that painting badly. I need that painting. First mistake. Don't show your desperation. Yeah. I I was already taken back by it immediately. And so so he goes, um, it's actually two thousand uh two thousand and I think twenty five hundred cities, something like that. And that's like that's five hundred American dollars, I think. So mm-hmm. I put on my negotiation hat and I was like, Okay, I'm gonna bargain with this guy. My brother was there with us, so he um he has like bargaining skills, really good bargaining skills. And he knows the prices too. So he, w- he would tell us if something was overpriced, he would come in and he'd be like, no, he would talk people down. So he tried to talk this guy down. I tried to talk this guy down. My dad tried to talk this guy down. Bystanders tried to talk this guy down. I mean, it was uh, it was a real sh- show. And I was like, hey, listen, I have a hundred American dollars right here. I'll give it to you. And um, just let me have the painting. He's like, I can't do it. He's like, it's... It's too, it's not enough. Like this painting is, I can only sell it for 500 American dollars. And I was like, come on. I was like, man, the money's right here. I'll give it to you. Just, you know, just let me have it. And my brother was negotiating with him. He just would not budge. The guy would not budge. So I left. We went to another booth, found another painting with somebody else. And then I came back and I was like, hey, listen, last offer. And there was a lady there with him that was like watching and she was like laughing and she was like, uh, and I, I spoke to her in the language. I was like, hey, listen, just tell him to let me buy. It's a good deal. I mean, I have the money here. It's better he gets something rather than nothing. And she was like, yeah, I agree. You know, you know, and then she was trying to tell the guy to sell it to me. And he's like, nah, nah, not happening. He's like, uh, I can't, I have to, you know, he, he, I think he's, he went down to 250 American dollars. And I was like, come on, man, let me just get it for a hundred American dollars. I had the money, but I wasn't going to pay for that much. So the guy wouldn't budge. My my brother, he wouldn't budge for my brother because he was with us. He saw Amy thinking that I have money. So I we had to leave. So I left and I was like choked. I was like, oh my goodness, I want this painting. So we went about we went along with the trip and days after, days after, um, I'd gone to visit my friend. Amy had already left. 
told my brother, I was like, hey, listen, that painting's still on my mind. I have to get it. Is there any way we can get it? He's like, you know what? Don't worry. I have some friends. I'm going to get them to come to the art center, and then I'm going to get them to bargain. They're, they're local, so he's going to talk to them different um, if they go. So this was probably like maybe like a week after uh, my brother sent his friends over there. He called me. First of all, I was like, hesitant i was like you know what maybe it's overpriced maybe i shouldn't worry about it. he's like no it looks like you really want this painting you should go you should try and get it so he's like okay i'm gonna get my friends and they're coming so he got his friends to come he met them at the art center what he did was he tried to show them where the booth was and then he tried to hide because he was afraid that the guy was going to recognize him so he did that showed the guys his two friends it was like his friend and his wife and then um and then his uh the, his two friends that he came they're a couple he showed them the booth walked out and then he tried to hide. And the guy that was in the booth that was selling the painting walked around the same corner and saw him. But I don't think it registered in his head that it was my brother from the, like, a, like a week ago, pretty much when we were there. So my brother like put his face down quickly and walked away. So the, the couple went over there and they started talking to the guy, you know, asking about the painting. And they're like, hey, um, we'll give you 100 American dollars or pretty much. I think it was like uh, maybe 500 CDs. Yeah, 500 or 600 cities for the for the painting, which is like 100 American. And he's like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. So they start talking, bargaining for a while. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to call the owner or the person that's selling this painting to see if they'll do 120 American. So he calls, and I guess the person gives the approval. So then my brother calls me back, and he's like, hey, are you willing to pay 120 American dollars for it? He's like, it's pretty, he's like, it's, that's, that's a significant drop. Uh, that's 700 cities in their currency. So I was like, yeah, sure. Like, let's do it. Um, so then the couple negotiates to get the painting. And the reason why he, he budged was because I think the, the girl that was there that was negotiating with him spoke a dialect with him that he knew. So that kind of like made him settle in a bit. And then he, before he was selling it, he told him, he's like, man, there was a guy here a few weeks, like a week ago. And he really wanted this painting. And I told him I didn't sell it to him and uh, and all that. So they were like, oh, really? And then they're like, yeah. And so they ended up buying it. Long story short, they ended up buying the painting and came back. And they called me. And they're like, yeah, we got it. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm so grateful. Thank you for doing this. Um, and then I was like dying because I was like, man, this guy thinks he sold it to somebody else. But it came right to me. And I was so happy about it. And now it's sitting in our living room. It's beautiful. It's a masterpiece. You can actually feel the texture of the paint on it. It's awesome. Yeah, very exciting. I like it a lot. Yeah. So that was a highlight. And your highlights you've already mentioned, right? Yeah, well, going to the ocean for sure. And staying in that, we found that nice place. Uh, what was it like? In the evening, it was like 6 o'clock and we didn't have anywhere to stay. We thought we were going to stay at the university, but apparently they didn't have rooms during the week. So we were out like looking for a hotel at, and it actually gets dark at 6 p.m. in Ghana every day, which was surprising to me. Uh, well, maybe because in Canada we have the summertime, the days are longer. So this feeling of like short days with hot, sunny days is, it's weird, but it's good because it is so hot. So it's kind of a relief when the sun goes down, but so we're looking for a hotel room. We ended up going like up this crazy bumpy road. We didn't even know where we were going. And then the morning, it was so beautiful. Yeah. We had such a nice such room. Such an awesome view. I could have stayed there for a week. I kind of wish we had of, but we only had so much time. 
Yeah. Next time, you and me, no one else. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more places for us to uh, see. There's a lot more places to see. It's only so romantic with your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, you know? They weren't really in our way, though. Like I said, it's all, it can only get so romantic. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, it's hard a different to travel kind of, with your in-laws. It's a different eh? kind of trip. Yeah. It's just different. For sure. But yeah, that was definitely a highlight for me. And I enjoyed like going down to uh, Osu. Osu, yeah. It's I like had the nicer Ox- parts. Oxford, Oxford Street Road, with yeah. uh, Amonkwa. He yeah. took us to like some of the shops. Some really nice spots. Yeah, there. some of the... I like shopping, so I liked going there and finding clothes and just looking around. And then we got some ice cream at Frankie's. Yeah, which is a very that modern was nice. Place. We went there twice. Yeah, and I really liked the way they designed um, their balcony and everything. It was really nice. And so I liked when we had those times, especially in the evenings. We'd go at night and walk around on the streets and kind of do some shopping and look at the different stores and kind of more of like the artistic expression of Ghana. I yeah. like that. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. It's really mm-hmm. nice. That was fun. And of course, where we stayed, it was beautiful. So it was nice to be there too, sitting on their uh, their little porch they have. Yeah. I don't the know mornings. if you can even call it a porch. It's too fancy to be a porch, but. Yeah. <laughs> the mornings was like, there was like a nice breeze that came through in the morning. And then in the evening, there was a breeze. I had my instant Starbucks uh, coffee packs there. That got me through. So they don't drink coffee in Ghana. Well, they do. They do? Probably not as much as here. Who does? Because I didn't see any. (laughs) Well, I'm sure somebody does there. Yeah, I'm sure somebody does, but it wasn't like readily available. And I knew that from being in Kenya, so I came prepared. It was similar in Kenya. Another highlight that I had was hanging out with my friend Terry. Terry is like a childhood friend. It was nice to see Terry. I felt like warm feelings when I saw Terry too because I know Terry from Virginia and he came to Toronto. Yeah, he came to stay with us in Toronto. Actually... He came to visit us right after he he came from Ghana. Mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. was telling us about Ghana and all that. And he was telling me, you got to go back. You got to go check it out. And uh, we were talking about him on the trip because there's so much begging. <laughs> um, like you'll be in traffic and someone's selling something next to you, like right by your window. So we were talking about Terry because Terry told us about that when he came, right? And I, th- I thought he was being like he was exaggerating. But we were there and I was like, oh, wow, Terry wasn't lying. And then, like, a few days after I'm there, I get a text from him, and he's like, hey, it's Terry. I'm in Ghana. And I'm like, what? He's like, what are the chances of me being here and you being here? Apparently, he had been there since December, and he's going to be there, I don't know, till when. He's building his hotel and going to try and make some money and live there, which was interesting. Because he has a girlfriend right now that lives in Kenya uh, who just recently visited him to check out Ghana for the first time. So that was, like, inspiring, having... A good friend, uh, finding a good friend there and seeing him do well, it made me feel like I was missing out. And I was like, oh, man, my friend did it. That'd be nice to come back and do something and go back and forth. So mm-hmm. that was nice to see Terry. And hanging out with him was fun. It was relaxing. Like I said. I kind of wish I had gone there because it yeah, sounds like it would have been more relaxing. It was a l- very relaxing. It was a nice The crowd's very busy, so his it's town like was not. high pace. Not a lot of relaxing there. Man, his town was so relaxed. And we just hung out and... I mean, he had a cousin, his cousin's wife waited on us hand and foot. And I was like, I felt so bad. because I was like, man, you don't even know me. And he was like, he said he had to like tell her so many times that she didn't have to do half the things she was doing. So what she was even doing was like toned down because he told her, he's like, no, I, I'm, I'm able to do this for myself. It's part of our culture to be 
extra to be just yeah well the women let's be honest just to serve it's not the men the men aren't serving anybody <laughs> wow shots no fired? it's true though it's the women that do that serving shots fired eh just sounds like you have a little bit of no. bitterness in there <clears throat> no i'm just saying let's be real no the women are incredible that is true. The women, I want to give them the credit. Yeah, the women are very incredible. They're, Men they're, get credit for other things. What's wrong strength. with that? The like I felt like women in Ghana are strong. They're very strong, um, and they just seem like they're very, you know, they're just giving their all for family and for their community. And it was nice to see. It was nice to see. So yeah, uh, Sumanya was very fun. I really enjoyed that, and I will go back there again when I if I go to Ghana again. So um, yeah. Let's talk about me ending up in jail. Yeah, how did that happen, Danfi? <laughs> oh, I wish. So you I were leave. There. I leave, and this is what happens. He ends up in jail. <laughs> I'm in the hospital. Probably what five days in. Yeah. I'm sp- I'm like literally spending the entire day, every single day in the hospital. I'm exhausted. I got sick from coming back from Ghana. I was sick before I even left. I don't know. It was some kind of respiratory thing. I don't know if it's because of all the smoke, like they're always making like fires outside, burning tires, burning wood, or all the dust. I don't know what it was, but I got so, so sick. And then I'm like in the hospital every day. They almost told me I can't be in the hospital, but obviously nothing was going to stop me from being in there. And then Danfi like texts me and basically says he's like on his way to jail. I was like, wow. I didn't even know what to feel. I was like... I was numb at this point. I was just like, wow. And my dad, we prayed. We prayed for him. <laughs> so let me give you the time frame of why I went to jail or how I went to jail. So the last day, my last full day in Ghana was on Saturday. It was like Saturday the 8th. And I was leaving the next day on the 9th. So, uh, and the next day, Sunday being. Um, so my friend, Abeku, my childhood friend, invited me to a beach party on Saturday. So plans were to go to the beach party. My brother and I were going to go. Um, so we ended up, um, my brother had some errands he had to run. He was the one that was driving uh, the car because I was not about to attempt to drive in Ghana because that traffic there is crazy. And there's just, a, it's just, it's, the, the driving there is an extreme sport. It's not normal. Um, you have to be really attentive. You have to be aware. You have to be aggressive. You can't be a, a defensive driver there. You just can't. Um so he said he was going to run some errands in the morning before we, we go to this beach party. So I was like, okay, cool. So the beach party started at 12 in the afternoon and Saturday came around and I was just at home waiting around, getting ready. And then um, at 12 o'clock comes around, my brother's still not around. So I was like, uh-oh, like, where's he been? Or what, what is he, maybe he's tied up in something. So then I called my friend Abeku and I said, hey, uh, also known as Gerald Bento, I, I was like, hey, uh, are you on your way to the beach? Because the way to get to the beach would be passing where my aunt lives. And I was like, I could maybe I could catch a ride with you. And he's like, oh, I'm actually already here. And I was like, oh, he's, I was like, okay. And he's like, don't worry about you know being late because uh, the guy who has the food hasn't arrived yet. This was at twelve o'clock, right, or before twelve. So my brother gets ends up getting to the house around twelve thirty after twelve thirty, and he says, oh, I have a few more errands to run. And I was like, are you serious? Mind you, before I was going, Sharon, the girl that was taking care of us at the house, uh, had asked me if I wanted some food. And I said, no, I'm okay because I'm going to this beach party. I'm going to eat there. Uh, so I just made sure I had water, uh, like a big bottle of water and whatnot. 
uh, just to hydrate because it's really hot before I got to the beach party. So he comes and picks me up and he says, I got to run two more errands in Accra. So let me just give you some context. People that are in Canada that are listening to this. The beach party is located in, in Oakville. Okay. Accra is the opposite direction. It's like going towards Toronto, going to Etobicoke to like the, the West end of Toronto. And I was like, are you serious? Like, we're going to be, we're going to be super late. Like, and there's nothing, nothing happens fast in Accra because of the traffic, because of the, just the congestion, you sit in traffic. It's just, nothing is quick. So I was like, man, we're going to be late. And he's like, don't worry. It's going to be quick. I promise. So we, I'm, I mean, I'm displeased right now at the moment. And I, I don't like being late most of the time. Like if it's very important, I guess it's not that important to make it to a beach party, but I was already late. So I was feeling it. And I was hungry. So I was like, okay, fine. Let's just do this. So we go to Accra Circle. Um, it was like a really busy spot in the city. And he he's uh, he has to pick up some garments, like um, some outfits for my mom that were being altered and all that stuff. So we go to the one first spot. We get it done. Then we go to Circle, the busy spot, uh, where my, uh, my dad's pants are being hemmed or tailored. And he's going to pick that up. He goes there and the guy tells him, oh, the pants I'm working on, I'm only done with one. The other one... I can meet you on your way back from the beach party. Uh, so you can, you guys can just grab this one and then I'll meet you on your way back. And I was like, man, we could have done this like on our way back instead of going out of our way. He's like, it's okay. We'll, we'll get there. And I was like, all right, time's going at this point. Or it's probably like past one, probably two, two something, almost three. Um, so then we go to circle and I have my last bit of like American money that I need to change because uh, American money goes further there. So I didn't get Canadian funds. Uh, so he goes and changes it for me. I'm sitting in a car waiting for him. So in Ghana, the roads are very, they're narrow. They're not always wide. And they're also, they're like adjacent to the road is like these gutters and they're open gutters. They're not closed. There's nothing that covers the gutters. Water runs through. Sometimes there's garbage in it. Um, so where we parked, where my brother had parked, they put these like metal frames like these metal frames on top of the gutters and so that people can drive up to businesses. Like it's just, it's just enough for you to get your car over the gutter. Uh, so we were parked somewhere and it's like a store that my brother's friend owns and we we're parked in front of it. So my brother went to get the money and I was sitting in the car and I could, I also went into the store where his brother, um, his friend owns cause there's AC in there and whatnot. And uh, I was sitting there and then as I was sitting there, the there's some cop, a cop pulled somebody over right behind the car, our rental, the rental I had. And um, they were there for a bit. And then my brother ended up coming back and they were still there. So kind of asked, we kind of asked the cops to kind of move the car if they could get the guy to move up a bit. Having talked, having experienced this story, um, my brother said in that moment, he thought like the, the cops were taking a bribe, right? Anywho, so they moved the car up, but they moved it just enough for us to squeeze by. And I kid you not, I almost thought like before the car even got out, I was, I always thought, man, if this car falls into the gutter, it'd be the, the worst thing because I, if you listened to earlier in the podcast, I talked about us having to pay for the windshield that cracked on our way to Cocoon Park. So then we're backing up. My brother's trying to maneuver um, over um, just to go over the metal, the metal coverings that go over the gutter. And as he's doing it, he's backing up, he's backing up. And wouldn't you know it, the front wheel, right wheel of the, of the rental falls into the gutter. So then I just lose it. Mind you, at this point, I'm annoyed that I'm not where I need to be. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. Um... And I get out of the car, I go up to the cops and I said, hey, listen. And okay, so I speak the language. I'm not 100% proficient, but 
I was angry. So the only words that were available to me in the moment was English. So I just went up to him and I essentially raised my voice in anger. And I was like, listen, man, I, I, I'm sick of these gutters. Like there's these gutters are a hazard. Like the car is now stuck in here. You guys need to do something about these gutters. And I was like fuming at, at the uh, police officers. And for a while there, one of the guys was like about to respond to me. But I think it's the way in which I spoke and the fact that I spoke English, it triggered them. And there was another cop across the street and it just, you know, that Ron Burgundy uh, uh, anchorman uh, meme that it says like, well, that has escalated quickly. Well, this was the perfect moment for that. It blew out of hand. Like, I mean, these cops got angry with me and like were trying to reach, like they were like trying to reach for me to like grab me to like, I don't know if they were going to arrest me or what they were doing. So I kind of like pushed away. I got aggressive because I was angry at that moment. I didn't hit anybody. I just kind of like pushed them away. And then bystanders got in the way and started like pushing me away and pulling me away and pushing the cops away from me because they were telling the cops like what are you doing this guy has done nothing wrong why are you why are you attacking him so then the three cops the one that came was across the street came over and he was the biggest instigator he made the case a lot bigger than it needed to be but they started yelling at me and they were like in the language like you know where you're from you know do they do do the cops fix the roads do they fix the roads and then i was like no but i'm sure if i told the cop this they wouldn't get upset you know i'm trying to like talk back and reason with them again as all this is going on, I'm thinking about, well, as I'm later on, I'm thinking about how my tone and the way in which I spoke just further triggered them. I didn't cuss at them. I wasn't like, you know, saying anything crazy. I was just telling them, I'm just, I'm just simply said something to you and now you're freaking out. So then all these people got in the way and trying to protect me, which was really nice. This is like, got like the hospitable part of Ghana coming out again. People were just like really came to my aid. They pulled me out. They put me into the store that my brother's friends owned and they were like, stay here. My brother was there and he was like, don't say anything. Just let me do the talking. Don't let it, um, just stay in here. Don't move. Don't say anything. But at that point I was like trying to reason with the cops. They're like, you don't need to reason with them. Just leave them alone. So then the situation kept building up, building up. And then the one cop, the third cop that came, he said, no, we're going to teach this boy a lesson. So then he said, I'm, they're like, we're going to call backup. So they called four more cops. I don't know how many, it was like four or five more cops. And the guys in the store were all like protecting me. They're like, okay, first of all, what's your reason for, um, for arresting him? And you can't come into the store. This is my business. And he's in here. You, you can't come in here and harass him. And they're like, no, no, no. You guys are going to get out of the way. So they called these cops. They came into the store and dragged me out they grabbed me forcefully and people are like trying to you know come to my aid pull me away and all this stuff these cops came in they have like these machine guns by them and they grabbed me and i was wearing shorts they every one of them had like a piece of my shorts and they pretty much like yanked me up in the air i'm floating i'm literally floating to the like um police cruiser and i'm like as i'm going there i'm like listen i'm like you guys should let me go like I didn't do anything wrong. And never mind the fact that I'm not resisting arrest. Why are you grabbing me like this? I was like, put me down. I'll walk. This is in the middle of the busiest spot. Circle is a very busy spot. Everyone, all the bystanders are looking. I look like a complete criminal. Like I stole something or I did something like terrible. So they grabbed me and shoved me into the uh, police cruiser. One cop is sitting to my right. Another is sitting to my left. And they're still holding on to me as I'm in the car. This guy, the other cop is driving. They're still holding on to me as if I'm going to jump out of the window or something. But they're holding on to me like aggressively. And I was like, my goodness, I can't believe this is like gotten to the stage it's gotten to. So as we're driving, I start to speak in the language and I'm talking and they're like, oh, so you know how to speak the language? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. They're like, you, you know, you people, when you go out west and you come back, you think you're better than us and all this stuff. And I'm like, listen, 
I simply asked you about the gutters and I was just expressing a frustration that I was bottling up the whole time I was in Ghana, you know? Um, and those, and that situation was the worst situation for me to be in because I was hungry and frustrated. I was hangry. That's what I was. I was hangry. So then they bring me to the police station. They sit me behind the front desk and then they start joking in the language. They're like, oh, you know, like all the cops are like, oh, so in your country, the cops, you know, oh, they fix the roads, right? Because here you expect us to fix the roads. And I'm like, I'm sitting there and I'm just like not saying anything because I was just, I'm just shocked that I ended up in the police station. So I'm sitting there. My brother comes, come, ends up coming to the police station. He drives over there. And he's like vouching for me, talking to the cops. And they're like, no, they're not listening to him and all this stuff. So then as I'm sitting there, I text Amy. That's the moment where I text Amy. I'm like, hey, listen, I'm in jail. <laughs> I can't really explain right now, but I'm in, I'm, I'm in jail. And then I text my sister. I text my dad. I actually called my dad and I was like, hey, I'm in jail. And he's like, what? He's like, Qu quit playing around because he thinks that's a joke I'm pulling. I'm like, no, I'm literally in jail. I'm not joking. And my and I was like, call my brother, call Mankwa if you don't if you think I'm lying. And so then I hang up the phone. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna call him. I don't even know how everybody's feeling <laughs> that I've texted. As I get off the phone, I'm sitting there. They're like, okay, you need to hand over your phone, hand over your um, fanny pack with my money and everything, my wallet, everything's in there. And then he's like, hand it over and give it to your brother. And he's like, also take off your wedding ring. I'm like, what? What does my wedding ring has to do with? It's like, are you serious? My wedding ring? He's like, yeah, take it off. It's like, okay. So then I hand it over to my brother, and then. As I'm standing there, the guy's like, okay, now take off your shirt, your shorts, get into your underwear and get into the cell. I didn't really notice the cell when I walked in, but behind me was like a cell and it's like a, a it's like a dungeon-like cell. It's it's pretty, it's narrow, but it's like, it goes for pretty far back. And I see all these guys in there and they're all in their underwear. <laughs> so the guy tells me to take off my shirt and my shorts to go in there. And the other cop's like, no, you don't have to do that actually. Just take off your sandals and um, you can just go in there. So they open the cell and they throw me in there. and um, at that moment, reality hits me. I'm like, what the heck is happening? I'm like, how am I here right now? So I get in there, this guy, this big guy comes up to me and he starts patting me down. And then he's like, he's like, hey, there's a fee to be in the cell. It's a hundred cities. And I'm like, listen, man, I don't have any money. I'm not, and at this point, I've I've been humbled. <laughs> I'm not about to start a fight with anybody because there's a bunch of them in there. If I start a fight, I don't know who's gonna hop in. I don't know how it's gonna go. And at this point, I'm like, man, I don't want to make the situation worse. So I'm like, I don't have any money. I promise. He's like, so he's like, who's the other guy that was with you? I was like, that's my brother. I was like, all my money's with my brother. He's like, okay, well, when you see him, when you look through the cell and you see him come back, tell him that you need to pay a hundred CDs to be in this cell. I'm like, okay. I was like, all right. So I'm sitting in this corner balled up. Before I got in there, they're like, go wash your feet. There's like a shower in there. They're like, your feet's dirty. Go wash your feet. So they baby wash my feet. I come back and I'm sitting there. I'm just sitting on the, by the wall. And in this moment, I'm fuming, but I'm also like, how my tongue got me in this situation. I started thinking about the Proverbs, like Proverbs 12, 16, which says the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. I'm like, man, I just lost my head. Another proverb came to my head. I was like, whoever is slow, which is Proverbs 16, 32. It's like, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Uh, and the one who rules his spirit better than the one who takes a city. I'm like, man, I literally lost control of my tongue and my temper. And now look where it's gotten me. But then at the same time, I, I feel so wrong. I'm like, this is an injustice. Like, there's no reason why I should be in here. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't curse at them. I didn't, I didn't try to fight them um, or anything like that. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm going to write a letter when I get out of this place or if I get out of this place, um, because this is wrong. I'm going to write to the Canadian embassy. I'm going to make this big case. And then I'm starting to think as because it got quiet. I don't know what's going on there. I don't see anybody there talking on my behalf. So it got quiet. I'm like, man, what if they keep me here and I miss my flight tomorrow? And I was just like, 
I just, I started panicking. I was like, man, I can't be in here. And I was thirsty. My water was in the car. I'm hungry at this point. I'm just like, man, I cannot sleep in this place. I just can't. And all these guys are there, you know, there's guys in these cells or whatever. And I'm like, there's no way I could spend the night in here. I'm just panicking at this point. And then I hear them, I th- uh, like I overheard somebody saying like, you know, I could be in there for like the weekend because it's a Saturday and they they can't let me out until Monday. I think that was a tactic because in saying that they can't, well, the person who was able to release me was like a chief police guy and he had left the building. I'm doing quotes in the air right now. He had left the building. And so he's the only one that has the authority to get me out um, and he won't be back till Monday. So I think they say that in an attempt to get me to, or get whoever's trying to get me out to pay some money. If you really want to get him out, you pay this amount and he'll come out. So I'm sitting there. It's over two hours at this point. I still don't know what's going on and time's going on. And I'm just like, man, I'm angry. I don't know how I got into this. Well, I know how I got into this situation, but the fact that it got to this point is, is ridiculous. Um, and so I'm sitting there, sitting there. I see my parents come and they come to the police station. They talk to the police officers and they tell them the same thing. Um, yeah, we can't, there's nothing we can do. The guy who's able to uh, get him out isn't here. And I'm just like, I see my parents in the, like through the cell thing and they see me and I'm just like, oh my goodness. I like, Everything in me is like, get me out of here. Please do whatever you can to get me out of here. I'm like humbled, you know? And um, it, this goes on and on. I, and I, again, I, when I got, come out, I find out that my brother is calling everyone he knows. And one thing that I, I found out about my brother is like, he knows literally everybody in Accra. Like all the people that are somebody. He has so much access to people. And uh, it came into handy big time because he started calling all the higher ups that he knows to kind of relay my case over to them. So he calls one guy, and this one guy apparently worked with the president and came into the police station, and they're trying to call the police chief to come back because he had left. So they're blowing up his phone because he's not picking up. He doesn't want to come back. Um, and he's aware of the situation that I'm in, so he doesn't care. They want to, again, as the one cop said, it's a power trip. They want to teach me a lesson. So the guy uh, that my, my brother called, kept blowing his phone up. And then my brother called another guy who kept blowing the, the chief police's phone up. So the police, the chief police officer eventually had to come back. He comes back and they pull me out. I go into his office and as I'm walking to his office, I go out because you have to go outside to another building. My mom, my aunt, um, family, friends are all there. All these people are there and they're like telling me, do not say anything. They're like, don't get yourself in further in trouble. But I'm fuming at this stage. And I just like, I felt the need to like really express myself because I was like, you know what? Like, this is wrong. I shouldn't have ended up in this situation. And the way they arrested me was wrong. I was not resisting the arrest and they forcibly got me there. It was embarrassing. I go in there, I take heed to what they say and I just sit in there and I'm like, okay, they're talking. They're like, you know, what were you thinking? Talking to the police and stuff like that. And my parents like, just my dad's like, just apologize. To be honest, I didn't feel like I needed to apologize. But I was like, you know what? I will apologize for the 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 tone in which I spoke. So I was like, I'm sorry for the tone in which I spoke and, and all this stuff. And the guy who my brother called that wrote to the president, he's like, hey, listen, man, like this part of the world, they don't care. They just don't care. You don't, maybe in Canada, you have the freedom of speech, but here they don't care. Um, and so he vouched for me to the police officer and I'm sitting there and they're trying to get a statement from me for everything that happened. And I'm still annoyed. So I'm writing the statement and all that stuff. And then the second guy my brother calls, he had told my brother that if anybody asked us for money, that we shouldn't give it to them. Um, and that he was on his way and he would get us out. So he comes in. This guy is like a funny guy, you know. But before he comes in, there's a tall, huge guy who's 
appearance is like commanding, almost scary. He comes in and he's like wearing this traditional wear and he's, he's not smiling. He walks in and he looks at me and he smiles and he's like, but why did you do what you did? And he was the nicest man, scary at first, but the nicest man. I was like, man, I wish I would have dealt with this guy because I, this situation, I wouldn't have gotten to the situation. And he started laughing. He's like, man, I hear poli about police officers shooting people in, uh, in your country, in you know, in America, in North America, and he's like, um, "What if the cops shot you? What if they, what if they, they were crazy and they decided to shoot you?" And I was like, "Well, you got a point there." And he's like, "But he didn't make a big deal about it." Anyways, the second guy my brother called shows up, and he's just like, he came in like a boss. He's like, "Hey, let's go." So I pretty much got out when he came, and um, police were like, "No, no, no, he can't go. He has to do this." And he's like, "No, forget it. He doesn't have to do anything." You know, he's like, "Don't worry about it. Just come on, let's go." So then I walk out and then um, I'm a free man at this point. Oh, freedom never felt so good. I was like, oh my goodness, what? It, it felt crazy to come out. And um, I'm walking away. I'm like, I'm like, I told my brother, I'm like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And how come he has so much power? He's like, yeah, that guy is like, uh, has a lot of power because he has dirt on everybody. He's like the biggest, like a scam artist in like Accra pretty much. And he gets, he can do whatever he wants. So the guy who took me out, this guy he came, he comes, he comes up to me. He's like, listen. He's like, in this part of the world, it's all about who you know. You know, he's like, don't worry, don't be stressed, you know, enjoy the rest of your stay. And then he gets in this car in his little Mercedes Benz with his girl and then just dips out. And my brother, my mom, everyone's like thanking him and the other guy that came to help. And they're like, no, don't sweat it, you know, this and that. And I was like, man, I was still angry at this point. All this happened. And like at the end of it, I got to my aunt, back to my aunt's place at like nine o'clock. Totally missed out on the beach party. Totally missed out on everything. And I'm just like, so angry still that this happened to me ruined my last day and then the next day my 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 mom and dad are like okay we're gonna go to church do you want to come I'm like nope i'm not going anywhere i'm staying right here i don't want anything else to happen i i started fuming i was like listen i'm never coming back to this country and they're like don't say that it's not it wasn't that bad i was like no i was i was just speaking out of anger at this point and i was like you know what i'm not gonna let this afterwards after all the emotions had settled i thought you know i'm not gonna let this one situation ruin my whole trip but other than that, Ghana was beautiful. Ghana was amazing. And uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, despite me going to jail, eye-opening. And I learned a lesson. My tongue is too sharp and I need to take control of my tongue. And not to get so angry so quickly, you know. Um, and as wrong as the police officers were, and as much as I wanted to make a case out of it, I'm just happy it's over. I was so happy when I got to the airport and got on that plane and I came to Canada. I was like... Thank you, Lord. I'm back, you know, and happy to be back. Had a great time. Um, next time I go, I will make sure I avoid those police officers. Um, and uh, I'll make sure that nothing like that happens again. But I was grateful to have that experience and learn from it. And yeah, I, I'd say that the trip was was fun, even though there was so much that happened. Amy having to leave early. Um, but we had fun before she had left. Uh, and Happy that my father-in-law is doing well. Um, seeing him in Ottawa when I got back was good to see. He was in good spirits, talking, making jokes, and he was at home, just sharing the trip with them. It was really nice. And I'm just grateful that everything worked out, and I don't have a criminal record. <laughs> so it's all done and dusted. I'm happy it's over. Yeah, we'll see what happens in the future with regards to my relationship with Ghana. Yeah, there's many, uh, many days to unfold the future story. Yes, yes. But that's our trip. And um, yeah, it was I'm glad great. that uh, Dampy was able to come home and he didn't get stuck in a jail cell. Yeah. Imagine you lost your ticket. 
Oh. I was thinking, I was like, man, how do I explain that to my job that I can't make it to work? Like, or being in there for two days or like till Monday, I was like, no, I can't do it. God's grace. God's and, grace on your life. Yeah. Uh, I told you my life should be a sitcom because my fo- my foolish self, I get uh. myself in big trouble sometimes. Uh, but yeah, it was it was entertaining to say the least. Thanks for listening to our long-winded story of our trip to Ghana. And hope you were entertained. We're gonna have more podcasts coming up with Amy's uh, dad's memoirs. They're very interesting. Some really interesting things to come. Thanks for listening.